I am all for paying to market to new customers, but I'll never be able to wrap my mind around paying for our own diners. Why should we have to pay cover fees? It's like getting penalized for being busy. That's why I'm a huge fan of Yelp Guest Manager. It's a reservation and waitlist system connected to a diner network nine times larger than Open Table, and they never charge cover fees. Learn about their new $99 per month plan for newly opened restaurants at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast or call 877-571-9357 and tell them full comp sent you. Now here we go. And this may be a privileged thing, but you know from... If you get a Michelin nod, money's easy. Yeah. If you get Bon Appetit, 50 best new restaurants, money's easy. And it's easy to listen to someone in your ear going, one is great. 50 will be incredible. And maybe it will be. But if you kill yourself in the meantime, or you kill the business in the meantime, it's not. Or if you sacrifice the culture which was one of our greatest fears, I think, was sacrificing the culture to growth. And I just wasn't willing to do that. No. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. Great restaurants stem from running great businesses. And today we're going to talk about the business of running restaurants. Our guides on this exploration of what a successful business plan looks like will be Carl and Sarah Werlich, a married couple who turned their love of biscuits into a thriving and scaling restaurant brand. They built their business on the back of foundational principles and bleeding edge management strategies that have revolutionized their lives and their restaurant. Today, we unpack the tactics, tools, and strategies they've used to scale Biscuit Love from a food truck to a regional brand. We were fresh graduates of culinary school, so that's what you're supposed to do. And so you go back and you pull your business plan that you wrote in class and you take all the edits and you go, okay, here we go. And that was great to start. And we, over a few bottles of wine on different nights, we came to the conclusion of biscuits is what we wanted to do. And off we went to try to write the business plan. In the middle of writing, Sarah had a friend who worked for a restaurateur in Franklin, Tennessee. He agreed to give me 30 minutes. We had some questions. We knew he had a food truck. So I went down and said, hey, I want to start a food truck. No, you didn't. No, you don't. (laughs) I said, yeah, I do. Trust me, you don't. And he's like, why don't you start a restaurant? I'm like, well, we think we could probably get 10 grand from family. There's no way we can get 300K. And so two hours later, he says, the best way to write a business plan is to do it and base your findings, write it based off your findings. And we were like, in my mind, I'm like, okay, I've wasted two hours with this guy that's told me to, hey, family, can I borrow 10 grand and I'll get you our business plan later? (laughs) Right. And so I was like, wow, thanks so much for all your insight, trying to be kind. And he was like, no, you understand. (laughs) I've got a food truck that just sits there. Why don't you use it and try it and see if it works? And so off we went in a borrowed food truck. And so let's talk about the plan versus reality. So. (laughs) Right. It's a story of everyone listening, myself and you guys as well. How did you think it was going to go? And then how did it actually go? 
I remember the day that Carl went out for the first time. And this is the $40 part of the story. We had gone and bought all the food for the food truck to go out that night. We were going to a Predators game. And I said, okay, you have to sell 75 biscuits for us to have the amount of money in our bank account that we had before we went to the store. So that's what I need to do tonight. And sadly, that night was a total bust. Yeah. <laughs> I think we sold 20, maybe. And fortunately, we had a really good event the next night and sold out. So that was really great. But I think as with all things go in the restaurant business, I sort of like laugh now going, I think it's hilarious that we ever thought we could open a food truck for $10,000 or that we could open a restaurant for $300,000. Right, for sure. But it's definitely trial by fire. And I would say that as with all things from the food truck, it just made us a whole lot more resilient. We just sort of never say die. But yeah, I mean, the food truck was such a good sort of representation on a small scale of what we were going to experience in the restaurant. It was a lot easier to deal with propane tanks that were freezing up and we were wrapping them with heating blankets than it is to deal with floods in the restaurant and stuff like that. But, you know, you just sort of roll your sleeves up and work through it. Yeah, hopefully you do it when you're young before your frontal cortex is fully developed (laughs) and so you you realize the pain. And yeah. And so in those early days, there was success. And I'm curious to know, what do you attribute that success to? What did you do right? I think I had a menu that was 10 items long. I called Sarah in tears the day one about noon going, there's no way I can do all this by myself. And she said, okay, what have you got prepped? The brilliance was we went out with three menu items that we executed well. And we did those three menu items for, man, the first four months we were on the food truck. We honed in on something and kind of kept that. And I think for myself, having someone that would speak the truth when I wanted to put Scrapple on the menu and would go, it's never going to sell. And when I pushed it, she'd go try it, but promise you it's (laughs) not going to sell. And having someone to share in those times, but also to encourage and to put wind in your sails was big. What mistakes did you guys make in those early days and what lessons did you learn from them? Everything. I mean, every mistake (laughs) possible. Over committing under prepping. I mean, all the things. We were so fortunate, though. We had such incredible mentors within the community. You know, Nashville already has like a pretty inclusive chefing community anyways, but they really embraced us even as, you know, sort of food truck folks and welcomed us into the community. And I mean, really stood in the gap for us so many times. We were underfunded. Way underfunded. Our first winter, I remember calling our landlord saying, I'm not going to be able to pay rent this month. And her saying, don't worry, baby, you'll get it caught up next month. And saying like, I don't think we're going to be able to pay it next month either. And we hit our first winter. We were like, what just happened? It was like brick wall. I don't think we knew who we were. We knew that we were a biscuit truck, but we strived so hard to go, no, no, no. We're not just a breakfast truck please invite us to the brewery at night and please do this. And we didn't realize until someone told us a few years in, why are you doing this? You keep losing money, gaining a little bit, losing a little bit. So you're just spinning your wheels. Go back to these events where you're making money, pause it there. And then here, let's get a new plan for who you want to be when you grow up. Yeah, Isn't that such an interesting dynamic? So one restaurant or to another, 
I talk to people all the time and I did it myself. I owned a fine dining restaurant and I was like, oh, you know, what if we extend hours till midnight and we bring in a DJ and everybody's trying to make money outside of their core business instead of trying to inflate the revenues in their core business to the point where there's not another dollar to make, which leads to a question. Obviously, there was distraction in the early days as you guys work to figure out who you were, what your core offering was, how it needed to be delivered to your target market. But how did you find that focus? And then how have you maintained it? Yeah, I think we always knew the end game was a brunch restaurant. We lived in Denver. That's where we went to culinary school. We fell in love with snooze. It was our favorite thing to spend money on because we were really, really broke. But we would save up all week so that we could go to snooze on the weekend. And Yeah, we always knew that was the end game. So I think really in our last year of the food truck, we really started positioning ourselves to like be that brunch spot. And we always sort of knew that we wanted to take a similar approach to the food that we were serving at the restaurant as we did or as restaurants that we really enjoyed did, which was sourced locally. Impossible. Yeah, when possible, but also like taking a lot of care towards things like eggs. So it wasn't just the same thing as every other big chain breakfast restaurant. And so it was something a little different and a little standout. And so that's really what we started doing was like crafting our recipes around scratch made everything. I remember when Carl used to say the only thing that we didn't make on the truck was the honey. And that's because the bees did that. (laughs) We used to make our own mustard, which we don't do anymore. Thank goodness. But yeah, all the things. It is an interesting dynamic, especially from a culinary perspective. That This is more art and science than it is business. But over time, if you want to stay open and you want to be able to feed your family, the scales tip. And it does become more about, you know what? French's mustard is fine, right? Or there's a local regional mustard. We will use that because the labor and the raw ingredients associated with prepping this and then throwing it away when it's a bad batch. It's just not worth doing. Yeah. I think that's been like the healthy tension between Carl and I always is Carl's the super creative. He's definitely sort of our visionary when it comes to everything from the culture to the food and my background and both my undergraduate and graduate degrees are both in accounting. So there's definitely always this healthy tension between what's sustainable and what's nice and what's necessary. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. And I'm curious to know, how do you reconcile the two between you? Because you're married, which is complicated at best. And then you work together. And so, I mean, is there, because there are a lot of partners out there that experience conflict. Do you guys have a process for resolution? Yeah, we fill each other's therapist. We fill our own therapist up with the problems. (laughs) Um, I mean, we've learned and I think we're a healthier couple now for it. But man, there's been times in the past where she's, I'm pretty sure, has Googled divorce lawyer. And (laughs) there's been times where I've wanted out and thank goodness we stayed in it and kept going. But we finally took some of our own advice and each got our own therapist and Yeah, that's been the biggest thing. Well, that and I I had a friend who gave me some really good advice and told me to go pick up the book Traction, which I'm not sure if you've read it, but it's a business book. But basically the concept is that 
every business has a visionary, but there also has to be someone who's the implementer. And I think when Carl and I read that book, it sort of changed our approach to the business. And it was really like, ultimately, someone has to make the decisions for operations. And so we found that way of like having those conversations. Now, I had to learn to say, wow, before I said how. (laughs) But it's definitely given us like, at the end of the day, I sort of am the last person making the decision, I guess. But yeah, no longer is it Carl's in the building. We're going to cook the bacon to a little bit floppy (laughs) and the cappuccinos are going to be made to 140 degrees. Oh, Sarah's in the building. They're going to go to 160 and it better be very crisp bacon. (laughs) It drives the staff crazy. It drove us crazy. It drove everybody crazy. And, And I agree that book really as a visionary, sometimes I think I don't know. I personally, as a visionary, I always thought I was broken because I can dream, but to get that to the ground is a lot of effort, more effort than most. And so to go, no, I'm not broken. That is just my gift. And so for Sarah to be able to go, here it is. I trust you enough to go, is this a good idea or not? And if it is, let's figure it out. So this conversation is about to take a hard left turn. So <laughs> I've had Gina Wickman on the show. I read the book Traction six years ago, seven years ago, and it changed my life. And it it certainly changed my business. And agreed, I'm a visionary myself. And I was functioning in the visionary and integrator roles, which is a dog shit place to be because I'm not great at implementing. And I don't manage people particularly well because I don't like the tough conversations. Not that anyone does, but most people probably handle it more gracefully than me. And what I want to talk about, because this bleeds into culture as well, is, you know, through the book, you develop a common language. 100%. And common goals. And when we talk about focus through the book, looking 90 days out, but also looking three years out and 10 years out, you're able to create a vision that everyone shares for the company. Yeah. Talk to me about what it was like when you read the book and you were like, okay, Where are we going to be 10 years from now? Where are we going to be three years from now? We read the book on the heels of attending our first Zing train training up in Ann Arbor. Yeah. And quickly signed up for their uh, visioning uh, visioning seminar. seminar. And so doing visioning through their lens was unbelievable, but it has given us, there's something about putting things out into the atmosphere, speaking. Not, you know, we try to tell employees this. If you don't tell anyone your dreams, no one ever can help you get there. And so I think that there's something about going, okay, in Biscuit Love 2025, here's who we want to be. And we're going to come back and read this every now and then. And we want other people to read it so that we can all make a concerted effort to get closer to this. Terrifying. Absolutely. Terrifying terrifying because you're not talking about your hopes and your dreams. This is where we'll be in 2025. This is what it'll look like. This is what it'll feel like. This is how we'll spend our days. It's bold. It feels like a hubristic exercise, but what it is, is it's an invitation, right? This is where we want to go. Who wants to hop on the train? Yeah, it's been a really incredible tool for us at Biscuit Love. And we kind of laugh about it now because we look at it and we're like, 
there's definitely pieces of it where like, oh, well, that part of the vision has changed really significantly. We don't want 35 stores by 2025. We very purposefully slowed growth in 2018. But there's so many things in that vision that are real and we walk into every day and it's like, oh, it does feel that way and it does smell that way and it does sound that way. And we're about to start our new visioning process and we're inviting a bunch of other people into the conversation this time because what we've realized is that Biscuit Love isn't just ours anymore. It's this huge teams. And so that's been a little... It's better for it. Yeah, it will be way better for it when it's done, but it's a little scary sort of saying like, okay, we're all going to be a part of this this time. And so, but when we did the visioning seminar, what was so interesting is they separated Carl and I. So we weren't allowed to vision together to start. And so Carl's thinking, Sarah's going to put this all through this financial lens and it's going to talk about <laughs> P&Ls and all this stuff. And I'm sitting there going, oh, this is all going to be through the creative lens. And it's going to be all about how we have unicorns in every store and t-shirt cannons and all sorts of stuff. And it was really funny because we came together and we had to read our visions to each other. And I think I went first, right? I went first and Carl starts crying. And then he reads me his and I start crying because we were really so much more aligned than I think we thought we would be going into writing it. And so it was a really emotional process. And, you know, it's a tool that we use in our business every day. So Seems like a total waste of time. I know that's why most restaurateurs don't do it. (laughs) That's right. I think that there's something to discuss there, which is your business is only as good as you are. I think that we share a common trait. Everyone listening obviously shares the same common trait is that we're trying to learn and we're trying to get better. And that requires investment, investment in time, investment in bandwidth, and most importantly, an investment in money. I know, Ari, I'm very familiar with Zing Train. It's not particularly cheap, though it is incredibly effective. I think that there's guilt associated with, you know, you'll pay however much it costs to get the walk-in cooler fixed, right? 10,000, 20,000, whatever it costs. But you won't spend that much money to invest in yourself, right? Talk to me about how you were able to overcome that obstacle seeing what was possible and going from good to great, you're gonna learn something. Hearing different perspectives from different people in the group have inspired ideas or concepts that I've used since then that there's no way I would have ever come up with on my own. You pull it out of this as much as possible. When the well is dry, you pour a bucket in there and then tell us, now get it out. We could have been just as lost as when we started if all we got was, here's how to do it, go. These folks are independent restaurateurs, just like you, but they have one massive advantage that you don't. They have a proven plan. I'm launching my next restaurant marketing mastermind that brings together 12 owners and operators looking to massively scale revenue by working with me and by working with each other. This mastermind is so effective, we offer a money-back guarantee. So if you're interested in scaling your restaurant's revenue with a program that is guaranteed to work, apply today at restaurantmarketingmastermind.com. Again, that's restaurantmarketingmastermind.com. You might think being on the line and filling those tickets is the thing you need to do for your restaurant, but every burger you make is a marketing call or video that you didn't make to drive more sales into your restaurant to make things better. I think it's still a learning process that we're going through. 
2018, I was invited to cook at a food and wine festival. I got there. I'm angry. Everything that can go wrong went wrong. I'm miserable. I'm calling Sarah, telling her I want to come home. I'm just pissed that I'm there. And I leave there and I go, I'm one of the lucky ones that gets to go travel and people paid for me to cook. And I was miserable and angry. Why? And I realized that I love giving hospitality, but I wasn't giving it to myself. And so it's been a long journey. I think Sarah and I both have started the journey and it keeps both of us in check to kind of go financially, physically, mentally, hey, we need this. We need time off, but also to kind of force our team who's looking at us. I'll never forget a few months ago, Sarah was putting in the 80 hour weeks and always doing more. And I had the courage to look at her and and say, listen, you've got all these little eyes looking at you going, man, I got to work harder than her. And you're burning everyone out by burning yourself out. And so if you don't model self-care, then they're not going to model self-care. And I think it is. It's one of the most challenging, hard things for us in the hospitality industry is to actually stop and accept it. Yeah. And I think from a growth perspective, when we wrote our vision, we also wrote our core values. And one of our core values is for the love of growth, you know, and being a company that invests in not only our own growth, but the growth of all the people that work for us and finding ways to support it. So I think the spend for Zing looks crazy when you're about to do it. You know what I mean? Like it feels like exorbitant and all that stuff, but we just sent a team of seven people up this spring and the energy and renewed confidence and renewed excitement that they all came back with after that trip, we've gained that money tenfold back out of the productivity that came out of them bonding, them seeing a company that implemented this stuff 30 years ago and like where they are now. And they do a really good job up there just really saying like, this is a work in progress and you need to find the things that work for you and what makes sense. And I think it's been one of those investments that's been completely worth it. And then finding the ways that we can invest in our team so that they're growing the ways they want to as well. You know, what seminars do they want to be going to? What books do they want to be reading? Yeah. So, yeah. You look at it and you say the the best investment you can make is in yourself. And the second best investment you can make is in your team. We talk a lot in this industry about luring people into the industry, which is a sad but appropriate word. And then you also look at retention and the struggles that we have around retention. And there are certain jobs within our restaurants that are just not great jobs, right? Like the task that they do is an unpleasant task. But the other side of that can be, The job that they have might not be great, but the position that they have within the company, the company that they work for is great. And that's the reason to stay because you can roadmap out what a successful path looks like within the organization. And that's something that I know you guys do. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, we try to look at all of our failures and it's, man, as a human, it's tough to go back and go, man, we really screwed it up next time, what would we do? And so we've done the whole Peter Principle thing and promoted people far beyond where they wanted to. And it took a long time for us to go, that person really just wants to be a dishwasher and they want to come in and they want to put headphones in and sit there and watch dishes and clock out and go home. And 
I think really the day that we started realizing that and realizing that it's a lot like a college, I tell people, you know, some people come and they look at our culture and two weeks later they go, that's the weirdest place I've ever went. I never want to do that again. (laughs) And that's okay. I'm glad that they leave. (laughs) And we have some that come four years and I hope that they leave a better human. And then the crazy ones want to stay and go into upper management and become somebody that does the day-to-day and gives them life. But it's been the more that we can teach our managers, hey, not everybody's going to be there and it's not a failure when somebody leaves and helping people leave, but also helping them in and loving them both in and out has been a big thing. When I owned one restaurant, I had one job. When I owned two, I had two. And when I had three, I had three. Talk to me about working on the business versus working in the business. How do you scale a business without scaling yourself, especially in this industry? You surround yourself with really good people. I rarely work in the business anymore. And if I am, it's usually because I'm working on the business and then I see a table that needs to be bussed or dishes that need to get washed or a customer that needs something. But yeah, I think Carl and I really had to decide like who's going to take on the task of the operational piece. And once we decided that was me, and that was part of the problem of that, like we hit three stores and it really did feel like I had three jobs. And that was the point where I said, like, I can't do everything. I can't be the person who's in charge of the financials and the person who's in charge of hiring all the managers and the person who's writing the training manuals and the person who's doing the design work. And, the, you know, it was that point when I started saying, like, we're going to absorb some overhead right now that's going to be able to fuel growth in the future. And we really have the most incredible team of people around us. We have an exec team of nine people who are some of the smartest people I've ever worked with. Lots of different backgrounds, lots of different experience, but who really, really love this company, I think, as much as Carl and I do. Yeah. And some of them are family that sit at that table and they see it as the family business. But even the people who aren't actually family at the table, you know, see it as the family business and we see them as family. And I think, yeah, I mean, there's no way we could be doing this next phase of growth without that team. We could do it and it would be hard. And I think it's hard for people to look at man, I could take a lot of money to the bottom line. And this last year, we could have taken a lot of money to the bottom line and we chose life over money. And that's a hard decision sometimes, but we also went on vacation and came back to a better company than we left. And that was probably the first time that happened was this year. And it was so life-giving to us to go, holy cow, it doesn't need us. It's nice that we're here and, and we're doing good things, but these kids are making it a better place without us. Well, and they're so much better and so much smarter than us too. Their perspectives and their diverse perspectives make us better leaders too, I think, because they really just, they see things through different lenses than even I see anymore. I say all the time, like I haven't run the kitchen for five years at Biscuit Live. And like, obviously the pandemic changed that a little bit. Like we were back working in the business a lot during the pandemic the whole time. I say I never made biscuits, but I spent months and months and months actually making biscuits because we had no biscuit team at that point. And it was like, well, guess I'm doing this. But yeah, I mean, we have an incredible team of people. Yeah. 
something that's come up in this conversation again and again and again is kind of the idea of investment, right? Investing more in your team, investing more in yourselves. I think one of the big hurdles as an entrepreneur is really being able to clearly define the differences between an expense and an investment, right? What I've found in my own life, we offered uh, subsidized health care to our team and a decent 401k retirement package with some matching, not exceptional, but some. And Amazing. we didn't have that for the bulk of my career as an owner operator. And we never really felt like we could afford it. And then one day I just said, F it, let's just do it. And what I found was, and we made a ton of subsequent investments after that. If I spent the money, we found the money. Yeah. yeah. And so the revenues in the business would grow commensurately, not with the expenses, but with the investments that were made in creating a better company. Has that been your experience? Yeah, I tell people about we wanted to hire a therapist and we ended up with two therapists on staff. And that's a big chunk on your P&L. And going into board meetings, Sarah, was they didn't like it and they didn't like it year two. And somewhere in year three, Sarah said, you know what? I can't quantify this on a P&L, but I need to figure out a way to quantify it. And so we did. That's our first year. We studied retention and how much it costs to take an employee from day one to what we feel is proficient, which is 70. You know, on a Saturday, they can be 70 percent efficient. And we figured out how much that took and what our retention was versus their best restaurant on retention. And we figured out that we were actually saving more money than we were spending on a therapist. Oh yeah, and our staff is much better for it and they see it as a healthier place. And so, yeah, I think it's hard on that initial investment. And if you're not looking outside of the P&L, it's a really tough thing to swallow, investing in people. Yeah, because I mean, it's just not an apples for apples conversion. You know what I mean? It's money out and you don't really see money coming directly back in as a result of it. But I also just don't want to work at a place that feels unhealthy. You know what sure. I mean? And it's great because Carl and I just look at each other now and it's like, well, we don't want a biscuit love where that doesn't exist, our staff care program. I don't want to make more money at the expense of that gift that we're able to give to our team members. And the truth is, is it pays us back in spades. They're happier, they're healthier, they're, you know, like that myth of work-life balance is a bunch of crap. So all of a sudden their home lives are getting better and then they're better employees. And our managers aren't having to deal with trying to pretend that they're therapists because we actually have people who actually know what they're doing, you know, and they have the ability to communicate with someone who can help them navigate really difficult things. And that program I know we've intervened in multiple suicides because of that program. I know that we've gotten people into drug and alcohol intervention situations because of that program. We've seen so much recovery. We've seen so much victory. For me, like I don't ever want to own a business where it's on the backs of a bunch of people that didn't get something from it too. And that's why fair wages was always something that was really important to us. That's why creating a healthy work environment was always really important to us. And those investments don't seem like dollars at this point. They just seem like the right thing to do. Yeah. The restaurant industry is filled with all of these unspoken rules and traditions about how things should be done. 
How would you like to see the industry turn the tables to create a better future for all of us? I think, man, and Carl's riding the unicorn across the rainbow world. I think Sarah read a book a few months ago. I guess it's been a couple of years ago now. And it talked about all the tycoons in the 1800s, early 1900s, who the Hershey's of the world, who built towns for their staff and built schools and invested in not only their product and what they were doing, but also reinvested in making the place around them better and how much productivity, how much increase it was in the community. And I think as a restaurant, we have the ability to be a pirate ship, but we also have the ability to be this oasis of everyone coming together and America needs right now is less people on the sides and more people in the middle. And it's really hard to do that with your mouth full of food. You Mm -hmm. can't really spew things. And so I would love to see the restaurant industry continue. I think we've always done the right thing when when it's easy and when your back's to the wall and you're still pushing for the right thing. I think we can push and especially coming out of the pandemic, man, it would be great to see a place where therapists are easy, 401k is easy. You know, Nashville right now, we're struggling with housing and I'm spinning my wheels trying to figure out how do I provide the dream of home ownership for employees? Because I want people to be able to buy a home and celebrate and do those things. And I think I'd love to see the restaurant industry do that more dreaming and more coming together and sharing of ideas. Yeah. I think for both of us, like our heart really is just in hospitality, but I think creating spaces where we're showing hospitality to our teams first so that they're able to show hospitality to our guests because it just doesn't work the other way. For me, it doesn't at least. And I think we've proven that the model's really sticky otherwise. And, you know, I think we've all watched way too many people burn out and there's so many people that aren't here anymore because it's just... It can eat you alive and it doesn't have to be that way. And I think. And we burn people out. Yeah. And we have too. But I think like being conscious of the fact that we have a responsibility as the people in charge for the people that look to us as their leaders to like take care of them. That's Carl and Sarah Worley. For more on Biscuit Love, visit BiscuitLove.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.